Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's very special interview-only episode of the show, I'll be joined by film spotting co-host and Chicago-based film critic Josh Larson to talk about Movies Are Prayers, Larson's new book about how movies can function as expressions of joy, lament, anger, and praise in ways that are strikingly similar to what is heard and felt during prayerful worship. As a practicing Christian and a seasoned film critic, Larson brings a theological perspective to his understanding of movies that articulates the religious potential of cinema, not as an instrument for indoctrination, but as an artful expression of mankind's deepest joys, pains, and uncertainties directed towards God. Um, Without further ado, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Josh Larson. Josh is co-host of the radio show and podcast Film Spotting and an editor and film critic at Think Christian, a faith and culture website. He's been writing and speaking about movies professionally for more than two decades. Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate the invite. Okay, so I think that the first thing I'd love to do is give our listeners uh, a taste of of what this book sounds like. I earmarked a few passages that I wanted you to share over the course of the interview, and I wonder if you could start by reading the first two paragraphs of of chapter one of Movies Are Prayers for us. Yeah, I will will do that. We'll start right here at the top. Uh, So this chapter is, you know, it's titled Movies Are Prayers? It's it's kind of allowing that this is maybe a somewhat strange idea and making the case for it before the bulk of the book, which actively explores the idea more deeply. Um, So I start, movies can be many things, escapist experiences, historical artifacts, business ventures, and artistic expressions, to name a few. I'd like to suggest that they can also be prayers. What exactly is prayer? You already know. You've prayed, even if you haven't set foot in a church for years or ever. You've longed, you've desired, you've marveled, you've groaned. You've looked around at the beauty of the world, as the Welsh miners do in How Green Was My Valley, and said, wow. You've seen great suffering, as Sheriff Ed Tom Bell does in No Country for Old Men, and asked, why? Who is it that you and the miners are praising? Why are you and the sheriff bothering to complain? Wonderful. That is Josh, Josh Larson reading the first two paragraphs of the opening chapter of Movies Are Prayers, his new book, uh, published by IVP Press. Um, Josh, I, I think that I, I want you to start with that, not just because it's the beginning of the book and a, a nice entry into this idea, but it also gets at uh, actually a, an idea that I, that I most responded to in one of your uh, favorite movies of last year, the Coen Brothers, Hail Caesar, um, which is that movies uh, are not simply uh, entertainment, are not simply industry, are not simply art or propaganda. They manage to exist at these kind of multiple lif- different levels simultaneously. And when working together, when interpreted kind of holistically, you are able to get something out of movies that may be a bit surprising, a bit delightful, a, a bit insightful. And I, and I wonder if you can... Uh, maybe s- starting off with, with those first two paragraphs, maybe take us into the, the thesis of your book a bit. What, how, how are movies prayers? Sure. And yeah, Hail Caesar is actually a very good example of that because it's what the movie is at heart concerned about, right? The, the question of commerce versus art. And that's what uh, a lot of the characters there are wrestling with. Certainly, you know, I think you're right that movies can exist at once as multiple different things. So that list I read at the beginning, it doesn't mean they're either this or they're either that. um, And we need to sort them into their appropriate categories. Um, I don't think this project would have 
worked if I approached it that way, because every film I talk about in the book, I'm not saying this is the only way the movie functions and it's the only way to read it. I go from, you know, high art films to foreign language films to blockbusters to animated films, and they are all operating in different ways. But the case I'm making is that, at least for me, I see how at least one element of each of these films does function as a specific form of prayer as well. So I begin very broadly, as you mentioned there, with these sort of elemental human expressions, and then... I'm working from the assumption that even if the person expressing that sort of yearning or lamenting that you get in how green was my valley, or I guess praise would be how green was my valley, lament in no country for old men, even if the people expressing that would not claim to have belief in God, as a Christian, you understand that God still hears those expressions and is listening to them. So if God is listening to the everyday person express those things in their thoughts as they encounter and live in the world, certainly he's hearing those expressions when they happen to be formulated and lifted up by a movie. When a movie communally captures those same sorts of elemental human expressions uh, and releases them into the theater, those are things that God hears as well. So it can be very broad. In those areas I talked about, but then as the book goes on, it gets into more specific forms of prayer in the Christian tradition, like prayers of obedience or prayers of confession, and looks at ways particular movies might also model those sorts of prayers. You know, I I love the way there there are many different so there are many different types of prayers that you go through in this book, but you also talk about the different ways that prayers can be expressed and experienced uh, and they kind of map onto the ways that we express and experience movies on the one hand movies are these artworks that the people in you know the people involved the creators and the craftsmen involved in creating it are kind of working towards this kind of collective expression in the way that may be analogous to a prayer uh it's also movies uh, are these artworks that audiences experience in theaters collectively and so on the reception end it's something that we kind of experience as a group but it's also and especially in the the age of of streaming and home video it's an intensely personal experience um and so you have the these kind of three different ways to experience movies as prayers as such that the creation the reception as a group and then the reception individually um and but before we get to the way that you kind of uh, talk about those different uh, forms of prayer. I wonder if we could sit for a second with with prayer itself. I know that you, um, part of the research for this book was thinking about the different ways that Christians pray um, and how, you know, secondarily, how those kind of map onto your experiences with movies. Could you tell us a bit about your experience and kind of understanding and relationship to prayer um, before you started writing this book? And, and what is the journey that this book took you on in terms of your relationship to prayer? That's the area where I needed to learn the most. You know, certainly any project like this is a learning project. You set out to do it to understand new things. And I knew I would understand movies in a new way and see some of the films that I known well and look at them from a different angle, but really this deeper consideration of prayer is where I had the most learning to do, because even though I've grown up in the faith and have been steeped in tradition, sometimes that can mean that uh, you don't, you just do things because you've always done them and you haven't always thought deeply about them. So 
Um, although prayer has always been important to me and meaningful to me, maybe, you know, the most meaningful element because it often feels the most true element of my faith. Um, there were things about what does it mean to really offer a prayer of lament that I had to learn? Um, that lament isn't necessarily, at least Christian lament, um, just complaint or just throwing up your hands, that there is also an element of expressed hope in Christian lament. Um, I also had a deeper understanding about prayers of confession, which are so much more than just saying, here's a list of the things I've done wrong. Um, and some of this I already, you know, intrinsically understood, again, because of those traditions, but it really opened up and made them more meaningful to me to put them in the context of these movies and see how these movies were reflecting uh, the depth of these different sorts of prayer. In, in your introductory chapter, maybe it's the first chapter, you mentioned uh, with this book wanting to bring prayer out of the cloister and into the crud of the everyday. Um, I wonder if you could uh, ex expand on that a little bit. What, what do you mean by, by bringing it out of, out of the cloister and into the crud? Yeah, that goes a little bit back to what I was saying about how prayer has always been extremely important to me, but maybe because I have grown up in a Christian tradition that sometimes that can feel almost rote and more, I don't want to say authentic, but um, more visceral prayer for me has long been the kind that I express without real preparation, without um, a goal in mind. And it's happening not in church, but it's happening when I'm in the midst of life, when I'm just, you know, broken up by something that I've heard or really struggling with something or just in awe of creation while on a walk in the woods nearby my home, something like that. Those sorts of expressions that are instinctual and elemental, um, I, I feel very fortunate that throughout my life, I've always had this inexplicable sense that those were heard, deeply heard by God, even though they weren't maybe always taking a particular liturgical form. Um, so I guess that's what I wanted to, to recognize is that there's this other sort of prayer that's also very important. And that because now we're talking about maybe unusual places it takes place, that seeing movies as prayers is also in this sort of arena. Um, and I want to be careful not to say like, this is necessarily better. That's why I paused over the use of the word authentic, that this is better than any sort of liturgical form of prayer. Um, those are hugely valuable. And without them, I think, you know, we would be lost because often um, those models serve as our way to God when we're um, speechless ourselves. So I certainly still value those, but there is this other experience of prayer that I've always had throughout my life um, that includes uh, when the movies work this way for me. You know, I, I think this is a, a nice transition into talking about some of the some of the many movies that you reference over the course of the book in that um, bring, bringing the, the prayer into the kind of mundane, the, the crud of, of everyday existence doesn't just mean applying it to something as, uh, as a, as, as maybe not ephemeral, but as, as worldly as movies, um, but also the experiences in the, the movies themselves. These aren't just movies about explicitly religious themes that you are talking about, but movies about, you know, 
Rebel Without a Cause with with James Dean, you know, crying out for help from his parents uh, while while lying upside down on his couch and and both yearning and and refusing to to really give up on himself and give up on his parents and, until the anger just kind of overflows. It, it's not it's it's a, it takes place as much you know within the context of secular locations in the movies themselves as the somewhat secular location of the movie theater where you are watching and evaluating them. Um, I, w- I wonder if you could uh, t- take us into to some some of the movies that you, you talk about. Could you, could you give us a few examples of, of movies that function as different type of prayers that you profile in this book? Sure. So I pointedly did not want to deal with films that are religious at the outset. Um, I think a lot of good work and good writing has been done about that. Um, and so this was a chance for me to do something a bit different. So for the most part, I touch on maybe a few titles like that here and there, but for the most part, these are films that would be, for lack of a better word, described as, as secular. And, uh, then I kind of tease out while doing my best to not hijack the films, you know, take them on their face value <clears throat> and recognize what the movies are trying to do first and foremost and how they're trying to do it, but then tease out how in their own process, they happen to echo these forms of prayer. So Rebel Without a Cause is one that I include in my chapter on uh, movies as prayers of anger. And I think that that is the defining element of James Dean in the film, from you know his blazing red jacket to the way the movie just zeroes in on that teen angst, that particular teenage year um, frustration with the world and the rules of the world, the hypocrisy of the world. And how the film channels that. And also in the scene I focus on um, with the, um, you know, the cop, Edward Platt's juvenile cop who's there trying to rein the James Dean character in. I focus on this notion that, um, you know, we express our anger as a cry for help uh, in so many ways and so many times. And that uh, one thing I like about Rebel Without a Cause is how it offers this little hint of help in this great supporting character. Um, that the James Dean character runs into. So that's that's one example. Um, you know, movies as prayers of praise is the first uh, prayer chapter in the book. And there I talk about Avatar, James Cameron's Avatar, not exactly a critical darling, but a movie that I respect for its world building, just the immense creativity uh, of the world building going on there amongst the animators to create essentially a second earth, a variation on earth and how um, in doing that, uh, the filmmakers behind Avatar are really engaged in an act of sub-creation that you can see as uh, offering praise for God's good creation um, and uh, what he has made and what he has given us. And, you know, there's awe over our own natural world. And by trying to create another world that's as awe-inspiring um, you can see that as a form of praise. So that's just another example. Um, I don't know how many you want. I, I go on the movies as prayers of confession. I go from Toy Story to Hitchcock um, because I think in very different ways, uh, both of those sorts of films um, consider what it means to really offer a prayer of confession. You know, I'd, I'd love to zero in on a, a filmmaker and a film that perhaps that you argue encapsulates 
really all all of the prayers that you discuss uh, over the course of this book, and that is uh, Rushmore and the, by the filmmaker Wes Anderson. Um, I, I picked another passage uh, to ask you to to read for us today, and it comes from one of the the final chapters in the book called Prayer's Journey. Um, and I, you're you're welcome to to set it up as you like, but it's uh, from from my perspective, it's it's in the middle of a description of of Rushmore, a, a movie ab- about an incredibly precocious teen who's kind of flunking out of private school because of how many extracurriculars he's involved with. Um, but you are you're in the middle of describing what you call one of your favorite scenes in a movie that is um, is truly dear to you. Uh, is there any other setup you want to offer before you you read this this passage yeah, from Movies of Prayers? I guess for those who haven't seen Rushmore, uh, this involves a supporting character uh, who befriends that student you're talking about, who is the main character. Uh, So this is Herman Bloom, played by Bill Murray. And he's a guy who's, you know, a successful businessman, but completely at odds with his family, his wife and two young kids. Midlife crisis, I guess you could describe generically, though it's much more nuanced than that. And um, the scene uh, he's... The scene that I pulled out um, or that you mentioned here is at his kid's birthday party where he is just on the other side of the pool from the rest of the party. It's an encapsulation of his dismay and the fact that this life he has has left him yearning for something more. So I talk a little bit about this moment as um, a prayer of yearning. And here I'll read what I, I wrote here. Everyone at the party pauses to watch Bloom at one point. So he decides to put on a show, picking up his drink, whiskey by the looks of it, and letting a forlorn cigarette hang from his mouth, Bloom stumbles over to the high dive, bumbles his way to the top of it, and stands there, drink in hand, cigarette in mouth, beer belly hanging over Budweiser swim trunks. Anderson cuts to an overhead shot of Bloom at the edge of the diving board, baldness on display, belly bulging, brown leaves floating in the murky pool below, and then to a swerving POV shot as Bloom takes in the party from his elevated, inebriated vantage point. Cut back to Bloom, who walks to the back of the diving board for a running start and then jumps. It's a cannonball as half-hearted suicide leap, a yearning Hail Mary prayer. Sometimes we actively seek God. At other times, we sink to the bottom of the pool, only half hoping to be found. There is both stillness and terror down there. As with Jonah, the deep can be an escape and a death sentence at the same time. As Bloom sits at the bottom of the pool, a scrawny kid in swim goggles comes floating by to see if he's okay. It's enough to motivate Bloom to emerge from this particular belly of a whale and search for something more. That's Josh Larson, co-host of the podcast Film Spotting and author of the new book Movies Are Prayers, reading from uh, one of the later chapters in that book here on Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen. Um, Josh, thank you so much for indulging me to to read that that slightly longer passage. But I really wanted you to to hear both of uh, those paragraphs because I think it's a great representation of both what you do in this book and also what the responsibilities of a film critic who is uh, providing a kind of theological perspective or more philosophical perspective on the movies that he is reading, what what those responsibilities are. On the one hand, a film critic has to uh, describe and kind of recreate the scene and build the evidence for the argument that you're about to make um, in a way that doesn't feel like it's just kind of recapitulating what is better expressed visually. You, you kind of identify the elements that you're gonna, then going to work with, and then you take it uh, into the the belly of of the whale with Jonah, and we and we feel Bill Murray not just at the bottom of the swimming pool, but also 
kind of in the middle of this prayer as as yearning concept that you've been discussing. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that um, that process that you had to go through as a film critic writing this book. How how did this lens that you took on yourself to view movies through this this movies are prayers lens help you focus in on particular moments, scenes, movies that you love uh, in a way that. I don't know, it may be a bit different from the way you, you normally approach reviewing a film and also what 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 did what kind of opened up in these scenes to you that may not have been there on your first impression yeah you're picking up on what i really wanted to do is make sure that all of these observations or connections i'm making between the movies and the idea of prayer were rooted in the details of the films themselves Uh, Because I think one of the mistakes that we've made, and and I've done this myself, um, when we try to apply theological reflection to movies, is to bring a preset notion or, uh, you know, these theological concepts and force them onto a film. Um, And rather than letting the movie have the first word and taking seriously the aesthetic choices that the filmmakers have made and then saying, honoring those choices, describing them well, but like you're saying, using them to make the case for the connection that you're making with the film through your personal lens. So, you know, the the easy answer is that this is really, this sort of theological film criticism is not any different than say someone who engages in feminist film theory Um, or any other sort of particular film theory where you're viewing a movie through a very specific lens. Um, But this is something that I've only been doing regularly in the last maybe, oh, I don't know, probably eight to nine years. Um, My career before that point and out of college um, for many years was as a film critic in mainstream media. So I, my direction in my my career just went that way. Again, even though I was, you know, born in a Christian home, uh, that's just where things went professionally. So it wasn't until about 2011 when I took the editor job for Think Christian, which is a faith and culture website, um, that I had the opportunity to say, okay, what does it mean to write theologically about film? And I wanted to do it differently from what I had seen when I grew up, where there were so many concerns about content um, and, you know, the danger that movies presented. Uh, Another step then was to mainly concern yourself with the theme of a film. And so to identify a film's theme and say, okay, here's what this movie is saying. How does that message stand up against the Christian message? Um, There can sometimes be value in that. uh, But I I thought a lot of times it led to that hijacking of the movie itself. So this was my attempt. And it's been a learning process for me since I joined Think Christian is, is how to maybe do this. But this is my attempt to, again, let the movies themselves speak first, look at the text, look at what's on the screen, and then draw your connections from those details. Because I think you're just respecting the art uh, um, better if you do it that way. And I, again, one thing that I so admire about this passage and about the book is when you say respecting the art, um, I think one thing that people who you know may not you know, certainly certainly enjoy movies, but may not spend a lot of time thinking critically and seriously about the art form, maybe a bit daunted about thinking about film form as opposed to, to story and character and getting wrapped up in, in these narratives um, that you kind of lose yourself in for an hour and a half or two hours. But what this book does is that it, I think it looks at 
um, movies as prayers as both examinations of these kind of ethical codes of conduct, co- conduct as developed through story and character. Here we have the uh, the Bill Bill Murray's character uh, completely isolated and, and self isolating. You know, com- very depressed and and throwing golf balls in the pool and completely separated uh-huh. from his family. Um, but we also have a celebration of, I, I think at one point earlier in the book, you describe both movies and prayers as celebrating the endless creative potential of movement, light, color, and sound, uh, in that these kind of formal elements that go into making a movie, let alone the filmic vocabulary that someone as adept as Wes Anderson is capable of working with, contributes as much to their functioning as prayers as the the story and character. Um, and I wonder if you, if you could uh, sit with that for a second as well um, for us, how how you see the the actual the the form of movies you're describing and maybe Wes Anderson is a good person to talk about because of how how deeply integrated the those swish pans and those kind of the frantic kind of showing every single uh every single room in in the Belafonte submarine in in the life aquatic with Steve Zissou right. how how the form is working constantly towards uh, examining the kind of emotional and intellectual and, and kind of yearning states of of characters. How, basically, I guess what I'm asking is how, how does film form factor into how you're interpreting these movies as prayers? I wanted that to be at the forefront because, again, I think that's something that has been not done often enough in theological film criticism. And it's something that engages me the most. Uh, maybe that's why Anderson is one of my favorite filmmakers, because you're right. Every frame is packed with precise choices made for specific reasons. You brought up the Coen brothers earlier, and I think they work similarly. Uh, One of my awakenings to the possibilities of film was in middle school when I saw the Coen brothers Miller's Crossing. And I realized that it opens with nothing more than a drink being poured in a glass of ice. And I was captivated by that detail. And I started to wonder, well, why? There's nothing remarkable about this action, but it's where the camera was placed, how long was given to each little bit of action that was going on there. And I became aware of all of the decisions that went into filming a movie. So it wasn't just telling a story, as you're saying. So I think You know, film form has always fascinated me as a critic generally. It's probably something I had to learn how to write about and recognize myself, because when I started, I was probably more focusing on those things you described that that engages all of us right away about film is the the characters and the narrative uh, and this this idea of getting lost in a story for a while, which is perfectly fine. Um, But there is also a lot more going on. And as I've done this longer, I've become more fascinated in studying those elements of a movie. So there were two reasons then for wanting to make this a really crucial part of the book. This attention to form is that I enjoy it. It's what I like to do when I look at movies. Um, But also uh, I hope it might be um, able to to start moving theological film criticism towards that direction. Um, And there, there are other, you know, Christian film critics who are doing this and doing a good job of it now. And it's really exciting to see that that sort of, Engagement with film has been shifting, I'd say, the last maybe five to ten years away from a concern about theme and message um, towards film form. And I think that what makes, you know, part of what makes this book so uh, relatable and understandable uh, and readable to to any reader is that you pick up on 
uh, kind of defining elements of not just movies, but but whole genres that I think can be thought about independent of any theological perspective. But then you you kind of map it onto your central thesis of movies or prayers. And I'm I'm thinking in particular about your description of the French New Wave as uh, first and foremost a kind of an extended prayer of praise for movies themselves uh, in the way that uh, filmmakers like Truffaut and and Godard. Uh, absolutely not just spent all of their time kind of watching and reading and fighting about movies, but in the movies they made, uh, these are homages to the movies that they love. And the form itself takes much like with Wes Anderson, um, both draws attention to the, the playfulness that movies are capable of, uh, but also a, a kind of loving reference to, to this art form, which ultimately is what we're kind of grappling with. Um, it's, I think that, the, you know, we turn to movies and watch them and think about them ultimately because this is a, a way that we love to spend time watching or as in the case of film spotting or, uh, you know, talking about. And I, I think that, that, well, that's maybe, maybe that's more of a comment and praise myself, but I, I really admired how you were able to distill that um, both independent of theology and then also to have it work within your theological perspective. Well, I'm glad the the French New Wave section worked for you because that was one of the hardest ones I found to articulate. You know, it, it was something I felt while thinking about the movies in the French New Wave and, and, and watching them is that word you mentioned, playfulness, is that among the many other things they have is this idea that the cinema is a wonderful toy. And what they did largely is deconstruct um, how that toy had been played with in previous generations but it wasn't it wasn't to get rid of it. You know, it was to put it back together in a new way because they loved the cinema. And again, this comes you're getting into a little bit more of a larger theological idea here that, you know, common grace is something you could say is the idea that God has blessed all people with creative gifts. And when they use those gifts in a way that honor it, it's a form of praise. Uh, and so I see this in the French New Wave that the analogy I use in the book is, you know, think about a, a kid who gets a Christmas gift and uh, say say it's like Legos or something. And they will say thank you, maybe, to the person who gave it to him. But you know that the gift was really received well and appreciated when they start playing with it, right? When they start putting that Lego set together. And that is an offering of thanks when you see that kid playing with your gift. And so similarly, um, the way that the French New Wave filmmakers have played with the gift of cinema, uh, they've, they've taken the Lego set, they took, they took it apart. They don't do follow the instructions, right? They're building something completely new, things that we hadn't seen before at the movies. And so the argument I make is that the, those films can be seen as a prayers of praise. And, you know, I, I think that the, the kind of first images that come to mind when I think of a movie like uh, Jules A. Jim is how frequently things are sped up and we're watching the movie almost in double time. It's like the yeah. the filmmakers and the characters just cannot wait to get to the next moment of, of celebration, even in the midst of what turns out to be a, a, a pretty tragic uh, plot arc. It's the, the way, the way that they, you know, even fight over Shakespeare. It's not really a debate. It's a, it's a matter of sharing a love of knowledge uh, between, yeah. between the two the two characters. Um, and, that and I'm glad, I'm glad you know too, that, you know, often those films end on a tragic note. So here's an interesting case of where narrative and form somewhat separate, 
you know, um, and, and maybe even you could say message and theme somewhat separate because you could leave those films. And if you just read the plot synopsis, think, oh, what a, it sounds like a terrible story. But your experience of that film is, is that it's something effervescent, you know. And that's certainly a, a difference that Wes Anderson kind of carved out for himself in that most of those movies, at least the ones that I've, I've watched most recently, and if not in, in a happy way and a bit more of a, a graceful reconciling, maybe a, uh, with a, a bit of an epiphany, I think you mentioned over the course of the book, um, yeah. that is not as, as dire as where, where Jules and Jim lets off. Um, I, I know that we're running out of time and I want to make sure to ask you, um, one more question about your own work as a film critic. I was doing uh, some research into other you know, uh, practicing Christians who are also film critics, and I came across Anne Hornaday, who is uh, the chief film critic at the Washington Post. Um, and she wrote that, here's a, a very brief excerpt from an essay she wrote a few years ago about how she balances being a Christian and a film critic. Uh, and she writes... Still, I believe that work, like every other aspect of daily life, is both a venue and a crucible for exploring and expressing our deepest values. I take to heart the exhortation of the British mystic and writer Evelyn Underhill that work should be part of the creative apparatus of the Holy Spirit, how to live into that reality and still be inclusive, accessible, and, please God, free of scolding, self-righteous sanctimony. Uh, And I wonder if you could talk to us a bit about the the challenges and, and benefits of writing film criticism from a Christian theological perspective? And how do you best avoid, uh, you know, scolding self-righteous sanctimony? I think that's just not my natural inclination. So to some degree that comes easily to me. Uh, that, that's not how I was raised as uh, someone who watched a lot of movies with his family uh, my parents were discerning movie watchers, but they weren't necessarily, um, you know, super restrictive ones. I, I guess it was more a posture. We took a posture of enthusiasm to movies rather than one of fearfulness. So, um, so it, it, it kind of it wouldn't be natural for me to take a scolding approach. As a matter of fact, I was mentioning before how my career went towards mainstream media after college, and one of the reasons is, you know, the opportunities I had to do Christian film criticism, if you can call it that were of the more scolding variety, a a place that said, well, you need to count the number of swear words in the movie. And um, it wasn't that I, I did disagree with that approach, but it was also that I didn't really know how to do that. Um, So, so in a way, this is natural to me to take this approach, but it is also, I think, a matter of audience. And I like Anne's description quite well, and I think it fits well for the audience that she writes for, which is a mainstream media audience. I think I would describe my approach when I'm talking on film spotting as somewhat similarly. Um, I'm keeping in mind that this is a general audience of pretty intense movie fans, and they're coming to the show not for theological reflection on film. Uh, They're coming for my take, my general take as a critic and Adam's take and the back and forth that we offer over the movie that we're reviewing that week. Now it's something completely different at Think Christian, where the people there are coming specifically for uh, Christian reflection on contemporary culture. And so then it is a matter of putting that at the forefront and thinking that of that as my audience first. So I think, you know, the book itself was maybe um, a little trickier or maybe a little easier in that I, I took a broader approach. It was that Here's the thesis. Movies are prayers. It's obviously theological in nature. 
Um, but I did want to write it in a way that at least opened up the possibility that those who are generally interested in film could read it and say, oh, I'm not a Christian, but um, I'll read this take on movies just as someone who doesn't regularly engage in feminist film theory would, I hope, be intrigued in a feminist take on something like The Beguiled or, you know, 1971's The Beguiled, more interestingly. Um, and so I'm hoping that the book kind of works that way. I, I wrote it with multiple audiences in mind, at least. Well, Josh, I congratulations on the book. I, I really loved it. And I think that, you know, as what uh, Matt Zoller cites, who's the editor at RogerEbert.com, who also wrote the forward to this book, he says that um, you do such a great job of both offering your own insights as a film critic, as a as a devout Christian, but you you uh, you provide an, plenty of of space for the reader to explore um, his or her own responses to the movies. This is a book that's just under two hundred pages, and while it references uh, dozens upon dozens of movies, you you are providing a, a kind of jumping off point for people to explore their own uh, responses, whether theological or otherwise, to these films. So. Um, thank you for, for sharing this book with us, and, and thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for the kind words, Tom, and the time. I appreciate it. Um, I want to give you a second to plug whatever it is that you'd like to put. Can you tell us where we can find the book, or is there a website for it, or any Facebook pages you want to direct people to? Sure. You know, you can find it pretty much wherever you get your books, uh, from Amazon to if you have a favorite independent bookstore, uh, there's a good chance it'll be there. Film spotting, you can hear wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, think Christian. My writing there is at thinkchristian.net. And if you just want to connect with me, you can find me on social media as Larson on Film. So L-A-R-S-E-N. Great. Well, we will link to all of the sites on deepfocusradio.com, which is this show's website, uh, where you can also find a recording of today's episode and uh, two years of, of conversations about movies in New Haven. So, Josh, thank you again for coming on the show and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Take care. Bye.